listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Howard Wallace. And I'm Sally Douglas. And this week is Pentecost 2, or in the old language, is ordinary time, or I like to call it sacred ordinary time. And the readings are Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9, Psalm 33, verses 1 to 12, Romans 4, 13 to 25, and Matthew 9, 9 to 13, and then 18 to 26. And we ask you to be gentle with us this week because we're recording via Zoom and there are technical issues all over the place. So hopefully uh, we can hear one another and you can hear us. Howard, tell us about Genesis 12. Thank you. We've already had one little gurgle on the... (laughs) Well, we're we're beginning a a series of of weeks when we're looking at Genesis and particularly over the next five or so weeks, looking at the story of Abraham or Abram as he's initially called. And this week we, we jump across to Genesis chapter 12, jumping from chapter 1, which we looked at last week. Um, we've missed out on what's often called a primeval history. Mm. Um, there are a number of things that go wrong in the primeval history. There's murder, there's reason for a flood because of evil, there's drunkenness, and then there's the Tower of Babel with humans seeking to become like God. Um so in a, in a way, what's happening with the Abraham story is that the story of Abraham and Sarah, of course, in this context, um, uh, is really going to be a, a precy, if you like, a foreprecy, and have such a thing as um, of the story of Israel. And this is the way in which I think God sort of sees a response to the problems that have occurred in, in Genesis um, 2 through 2. 11. So we come to Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abram. Now mm. we've had four verses of this back in Lent, in Lent week two. Um, so we're revisiting some of those verses. Uh, it begins the story of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel, their ancestors, um, which is Israel's sort of story. Now we already are introduced to the line at the end of chapter 11 of the line of Abraham, the family, um, back in verse 27. We're familiar with them. And we do notice one thing back then, this is just before our reading, mm. is that while groups of people have been moving towards the east in chapters 1 to 11 or 2 to 11 of, of Genesis, now they begin to move back to the west. And we're told also in verse 30 of chapter 11 that Sarah is barren. And yeah. in their thinking, that means this couple are virtually childless, mm. no prospect of, of a family. And yet this call in chapter 12, beginning of verse 1, comes in and really contradicts that in many ways. Abram is told to, to go from your country, your kindred and your father's house. Um, you'll notice that each of those references, country, kindred, father's house, is narrowing the, the subject matter, what he has to leave. And in each mm. case, the, the in our case of pronoun, your is in front of him, the possessive pronoun, your country, your kindred, etc. Mm. So he's going from what is familiar and mm. what is well known, of course, 
And all he's told is, go to a land that I will show you. So he's moving from what's known to what's unknown. He's moving from what is familiar to what will be foreign. And over and above that, um, he's told already, or we're told a little further on in verse 7, that the Canaanites are already in the land once Abraham gets there. So there are others living in the land which, of course, will become the land that God will show him. So everything seems to be against Abraham to some extent. And yet there's the reference then comes in of blessing that's going to flow through this. Three times we get a reference to blessing and a reference to cursing those who curse Abraham, God will also curse. But the curse is surrounded by the blessing. And so we, we know in a way that the, the curse, the consequences of evil, will be overcome in terms of blessing. But just how And the blessing, yep. sorry, Go I was going to say the blessing is huge as well. It's not just for him. Oh, in no. you, all the families of the earth. Yes, all the, all the families of the earth. It's expansive. <laughs> yep. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, and and that's also introducing the fact that we're going to have right throughout Genesis introduction to a whole lot of nations that, well, a small number that live around Israel, um, through oh. Lot, the Moabites, etc., um, and others, and especially through uh, the um, the other son that we'll hear about shortly of of Abraham, yeah. Ishmael, the Arabian groups around. So there will be other nations. Um, And one of the important things, I think, even to notice at this stage in Genesis is that there is not the animosity between the Israelites and those nations around them that we will find later even in things like Deuteronomy. There's no sort of enmity between these nations. Genesis is a very all-embracing sort of um, philosophy in terms of international relations. So the blessing is is promised upon this family, but it's the family who are least likely to enjoy this blessing. He's going to a land he doesn't know. Um, He has a wife who we're told is barren. So what's the prospect of becoming the father of a great nation? He is 75 years old. Presumably Mm. Sarah is also elderly. Um, Mm. Everything stands against this couple and yet they're called into this sort of what we might call a faith context mm. to to hear this promise and to live according to this promise. They then process on this journey to the land, to the west, but they don't sort of stop in the land that God will show them. They keep moving through it. And in the latter part of the chapter 12 of, of Genesis, they move down into Egypt and eventually to come back um, just before chapter 13 starts. So already in in Abraham's life, there is this process that we're going to see with Israel itself as it too will end up in Egypt and then think about the the question of Israel coming back. So we're getting a a foretaste of Israel's journey. Abraham, sorry. Mm, Go on. Mm. Oh, and just... That, that, so that foretaste, but also that, that theme which we find again and again both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of um, out of scarcity, God bringing abundance. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. And and it's out of the least, the people who are exactly. you least expect to, 
to live up to this promise or to be able to enjoy it at any rate, um, that that this promise will come to fruition. Which is exactly. A theme picked up in the other readings for the week too in some ways. That's right. And and just um, we'll jump over to see what Paul says about um, Abraham in a moment, but just that sense here too of recognising that for different faiths, so for Jewish people, for Christian people and for Muslim people, Abraham is a, is a holy figure, Abraham and Sarah. So there's this deep connection from that Genesis kind of inclusiveness that has yes, continued yes, on our yeah. culture. Mm. Yes. Even though in, in the text in Genesis we, we see... Um, the writer very much sort of connecting Abraham with Israel at this stage. Yeah. So let's jump over now to talk about Romans because Paul picks up to talk about Abraham um, in order to explore some theological themes that he wants to explore. So this is Romans 4, 13 to 25. And he talks about Abraham um, and the fact that a great nation is made through him, but it's through faith. And I think the wider context is helpful for us here in Romans. Paul's writing to this church in Rome that he has not established and like most um, both early church and contemporary churches there are debates and conflicts happening and one of the things that Paul's trying to speak to is how can everyone be included and whilst in a Christian context we might ask questions and they can head towards anti-Semitic areas like how can Jewish people be included it's the opposite kind of question that is occupying Paul's mind how can non-Jewish people be included? How can they be part of this exploration of faith? And in, in Romans 11, Paul makes clear that, you know, Jewish people are in, like there's this whole, like it begins with these debates about, you know, Jewish people and, and non-Jewish people and so on. But in Romans 11, he says that, of course, Jewish people are in. But here in Romans 4, it's a kind of really perfect thing for Paul to go to Abraham pre pre the law to say here is a person of faith and through faith God was able to uh, bring this great abundance to this community and is the father of all nations. So so Abraham becomes a rallying figure here. And uh, it's a tricky passage though. Yes, I'm just going to say he's picking up on something. He's, he's not just picking up on the initial story, say, in Genesis 12 about Abraham's no. faith and response, but he's also including Genesis 15, which we're not going to have in the readings over the next few weeks when you know, Abraham believes God in certain circumstance about the promise and that's reckoned to him as faith. So he's taking the whole of the story of Abraham. Into he account. is, but he's being very selective with it, which I think yes. we need to flag. <laughs> and it just drives me, uh, I get quite cranky about it, to say that, you know, it's pretty convenient for Paul to say that Abraham, you know, just acted in faith when in fact he and Sarah engaged with um, exploitation of their slave Hagar and um, she's, I, I suspect, had very little choice in whether she had sex or not with Abraham and, and Ishmael is born. And so this and this happens in, in theology as later um, as well, Christians ignoring this, that, that it's a troubling text. It's a, a problematic text. And then um, Sarah treats Hagar terribly, like so badly, and sends her away and thank, thank God that God um, 
continues to care for Hagar. So it's a complicated text. And I think mm. um, so preaching on it with some integrity means that we acknowledge some of that violence that is within the text that Paul is referring to um, because it's just a little too convenient to whitewash it, I think, and we're in danger of um, hypocrisy if we do. Yes, I think we've got to recognise our own issues that, that arise because of the nature of the text, but the way the story also evolves has its own integrity. In that yeah. Context. And, um, being able to wrestle with text and and to acknowledge those things that that um, that are violent is important. I th- I think mm. that being able to engage robustly with what's going on and you know understand the layers within this text that um, for Sarah particularly as a woman in a patriarchal culture who was not able to have children, not only was would there be her own deep grief we can imagine about not being able to have babies. There's the um, condemnation and shaming of this woman as well. So it's a it's a layered, layered text. The other, and that's the other thing I just flag before we jump on to look at Matthew is that if you're preaching on this text, there are some pastoral implications because there'll be people in your congregation who have wanted to have babies and who couldn't or who have lost babies. And so it just we can just be a bit glib, I think, oh, and he was faithful and then they got pregnant. You know, that it can... It can be. We need to hold these texts in a in a gentle way, and to name that, as you said, Howard, we all come with our stuff, and some of that is our own deep grief stories. I think, the, but in there are time remaining. Can we jump over? Yeah, no, I was just going to say in, in Romans four. I mean, I think one of the things, getting back to the inclusion or non-inclusion of Gentiles, and yeah, um, Paul's argument with those who argued people ought to become Jews before they be circumcised in this case, before they become Christians. Yes. Um, there's the issue of the relationship between faith and cultural values that, that sort of yes. enter here, um, which is still quite a, a live issue for us, and that the, the way that faith does relate to, to culture and expectations in that context. Oh, you're absolutely right. And actually that leads into some of the things I wanted to say about Matthew 9 um, very perfectly, Howard. So... If we jump over to Matthew 9, it's in two sections and they're both awesome and it's tricky that they're squished together. There's actually three amazing stories in here. So there's Matthew 9 to 9. Uh, we just missed you there, I think. Can you repeat the verses? Oh, did it jump out? Sure. Yeah. Matthew 9, 9 to 13, when we hear about Matthew the tax collector, may or may not be connected with the author, who knows, um, possibly not. And then we hear another amazing story in Matthew 18 to 26, and it's intertwined. So we hear about the daughter um, who's not dead but she's sleeping. Uh, And at the same time this other woman who has been um, bleeding and so is, again, for different reasons, going to be ostracised in her community and to the edges because she cannot be clean. And so it's a really interesting, I mean, you could devote whole days to each of these three different stories of these women, but I think there's some really profound themes throughout them. So just for context, in Matthew's gospel, the author states right up front who they believe Matthew to be, Matthew, uh, who they believe Jesus to be. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So, And throughout Matthew's gospel, this uh high Christology, this wisdom Christology, Jesus as the God one, Jesus as the word, Jesus as Torah, Jesus as Sophia, um, Jesus embodies God desires. And so in the Sermon on the Mount we hear um, an expanded version of what God desires and it is peacemaking and mercy 
uh, and loving enemies. And now we hear this tiny little passing reference, but it's a refrain in Matthew's gospel, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So Jesus has called this tax collector who everyone hates, the religious leaders, uh, so the cultural um, authorities, really, the religious and cultural authorities are really cranky. Like why is he feasting with and um, making friends with these sinners, these tax collectors and sinners, so people that they assume are absolutely not okay. Um, and I think we can think of some words that would be thrown around our culture, you know, dull bludgers or losers or mm. uh, yes. waste of spaces, all those kind of things. And Jesus chooses to make friends with these people. So it's an embodiment of a, a way of being which disrupts cultural expectations. And then when they complain, Jesus doesn't back down. He says, go learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So this reference to Hosea. And um, he makes the same, he repeats this claim again in Matthew 12. Uh, so it's a, it's it an embodiment of it in the befriending and the feasting. Mm-hmm. And um, then there's a proclamation of it as well, drawing from um, sacred Jewish text. I think the other thing that's sort of tying this back to the, Abraham's story in in Genesis 12 is, again, you've got people who might be regarded by certain sections of society as the least, the the ones who can be dispensed with, the tax collectors, sinners, etc. But even then when you get to verse 18 and the uh, man who thinks he's a leader of the synagogue who thinks his his daughter has died, um, again, you've got what for all intents and purposes is a hopeless situation. Yes. And a question of promise and faith in that context. Absolutely. And, again, and I, that's why I love, I mean, in some ways it's good that these different stories are held together. So we hear about the, the man who has a powerful position, the tax collector, even though he's hated, and then we hear about a girl who's lost her life and then this woman who had mm-hmm. um, gynecological issues who had, will clearly have been ostracised yep. from yes. the community. And at each point, Jesus, Emmanuel, Jesus, the God one, Jesus, Sophia, is the one who sees and cares and responds in compassion and not just compassion, this friendship, like this relationship, like come, let's eat together. Um, it, it, uh, home. It's incredible imagery. So I think there's we a We missed a bit there, Sally. Because Sally, Sally and, we missed a oh, little bit. Again, Just repeat yeah. that last word. Okay. Um, I think there are some beautiful challenges for us in these readings because, Howard, as you said before, that we are still bound by a whole lot of cultural assumptions, even if we don't name them, about who we think is in or who we think is important. And this happens across the church, whether it's in more conservative circles where people think that... Um, if if you drink alcohol, you're excluded, or or whether it's in really liberal circles where if you talk about prayer too much, people might look on you <laughs> in confusion. You know, we we are judgy no matter which kind of tribe we identify with, and so that invitation yep. to look with Jesus' eyes and to seek friendship with, not um, power over, is a radical disruption of how we do life. And I think that's what we're calling to as Christians, not to try and compete to be doing the most or compete with who is the best or the most clever, but to actually seek to be friends and be part of healing and communities that create space for all to be included. Mm. Yes. And faith is involved with all of these people in this context. That's right. Yeah. And that God can bring um, 
beauty and enough even feasting out of the scraps that we have within ourselves and within our church that it's not all up to us, praise be to God, but we're all invited into experiencing the mercy of God and then in our own faulty ways trying to share that mercy of God. Yes. Okay. Thanks, everyone. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.